Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our human relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, forestry, community, conservation, and other interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as the final word. Each perspective will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where, as humans, we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to thriving ecosystems and the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. On a late summer's day, I visited the home of Peter Romke and his wife near the Atlantic coast of Nova Scotia in the southeast part of the Sebeganegadi district of Mi'kma'ki, which is the unceded and ancestral territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I think you will enjoy Peter's stories as he illustrates his thoughts and knowledge. Nova Scotia and the Wabanaki Acadian Forest Region has been home to Peter Romke for his entire life. During his year at Maritime Forest Ranger School, he became enthralled with Indigenous plants. His professional career with Lands and Forestry and the Casey Irving Environmental Science Centre and the Harriet Irving Botanical Gardens at Acadia University at Acadia University allowed him to gather a great deal of practical knowledge about plants. Retired now on Rompke Hills on the South Shore, Peter spends his time gardening, constructing stone walls and buildings, and brewing New England-style IPA, along with a few other hobbies. He's very grateful that the wildlife in their small forest has welcomed them to their home, and he promised them it will be better after they leave. To start off this episode, here is Peter's response to me asking him for an overview of his professional history. So uh, I, I graduated from a Maritime Forest Ranger School. I think it was 1978. And when I graduated, I, you know what I mean? I was so inspired by what I learned in that one year. It was a very intense year of learning, but I was really inspired by what I learned. And, and I thought about going back, but that wasn't where life sent me. And uh, so I ended up uh, applying for uh, some positions with uh, Lands and Forests at that time, which became Natural Resources. I'm not sure why they keep changing the name. It's always the same. It's the oh. same old bunch and the same old issues. But so, I, yeah, I worked with uh, uh, Natural Resources for 20 years. Uh, I was uh, work, I worked with Forest Research for 10 and with the Christmas tree growers in southwestern Nova Scotia, providing technical support and, you know, helping them, you know, get their trees to market, which, you know, it has become much more difficult than it was originally. And uh, then I did education for two years at the education uh, complex in Middle Muscadabit. Um, at that time, they, uh, the, the provincial government gave a number of a whole, all the specialists across the province the option to leave. And so I left. Hmm. Uh, I had been there for 22 years, but I just felt though I was a little bit stifled. I wasn't able to really do what I wanted to do. So I left with the idea of creating a company and becoming my own boss and, you know what I mean, doing what I wanted to do, which was very much related to the indigenous plants, uh, growing and culture of indigenous plants, uh, using them in landscapes, whether they were landscapes around your house or larger landscapes, uh, 
And uh, I only lasted a year when uh, when I got tangled up with uh, a project at Acadia University. It was uh, Harriet Irving Botanical Garden that was being developed, and they were looking for people that uh, could find trees that were in the way of development. All the plants that went into that garden could not be taken from uh, just out in the forest. It had to come from where, you know what I mean, forest was being cleared for uh, subdivision development or a mall or a road. So it was quite challenging for them to find all the trees. So I got involved with that, and uh, they asked me to stay on as horticulturist. And uh, a few years later, they... uh, they asked if I would uh, take on the directorship of the Casey Irving Environmental Science Center and Harriet Irving Botanical Gardens. So that's uh, that's where I ended up for the last 15 years. Until 2018, I think, I left. Hmm. Yeah. And was that a good alternative to what you had originally wanted to do with starting you your own what? business? When, it, when I was growing up uh, uh, at, at this Maritime Forest Ranger School, which is, a, you know what I mean, some people would consider, you know, sort of a silly little program, but it was very, it was very intense. And we had to do a plant collection in the summer. And I fell in love with indigenous plants. Everywhere mm-hmm. I went, I collected plants. So I came back, I think I had the largest plant collection that was ever collected you know what I mean, by a student. So that we had to do this in the summer. Uh-huh. When you came back in the fall, you know what I mean, you've presented your plant collection. And, uh, you know, it wasn't done, you know, to any kind of herbarium standard or anything. But I had identified and collected hundreds of species of plants. And I just thought at that time, I thought, you know what, I would love to be the director of a botanical garden. That's, that's my dream, work in a botanical garden, be the horticulturist, be, you know, somebody that, you know what I mean, was, was uh, you know, intensely involved with the development and the evolution of a botanical garden. And that's where I ended up. Oh, so it was kind of fun. That's really neat to yeah, know. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, okay, I guess I'd like to know m- more about everything, but... What did you do for lands and forests, and what was your work like there? Well, so for the first two years, I worked at a district office in Windsor, and it was a great experience. I, I worked under a man called Les Corkum. Everybody, everybody in forestry knew Les Corkum. He had worked in various departments, a very, very smart and intelligent man. They had a, uh, thousands of acres of land and a sawmill, a, a water-powered sawmill. His family did in Chester, and that's where uh-huh. he came from. And, and uh, he was an engineer during the war, and he wanted to be a pilot, and they wouldn't let him fly because he was too smart of an engineer. You know, so mm-hmm. anyway, uh, Les inspired me to, to get involved. He was grafting conifer trees, and he was very much into the, into Christmas trees on the weekend. He was a supervisor at Windsor, so I spent two years there, and uh, and so that was just regular duties. Like I looked after Smiley's Park, and I you know scaled wood, and uh, we cruised woodlots, uh, did boundary lines in the winter. It was wonderful work. I loved it. It was it was brilliant. And uh, then I got a job with uh, Forest Research in Truro. And Forest Research was a, was a, a great, I mean, a, a amazing organization. It was headed by a guy by the name of Ed Bailey, another very inspiring person. And so I was a research technician, and what we did was we went to the woods, and we laid out plots and planted trees in various locations, different soil types, different stock types, which would be like, you know, multi-pot versus bare root, uh, different uh, soil types, and then, you know, measured the response. You know, mm. uh, you know did they grow, did this species grow better? here than there and uh, then it, it evolved into uh, you, you're gonna hate me for this but it evolved into uh, 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 you know free to grow I was I was responsible to get plantations to do the research to get plantations free to grow which meant 
I was involved with uh, uh, glyphosate and uh, the early days of glyphosate uh -huh. and glyphosate in forestry. So I became sort of a glyphosate sort of expert, roundup, vision, whatever you want to call it, and uh, not an expert on it by any stretch from a chemical standpoint, but for how it, how it reacted with plants in Nova Scotia. But at the same time, uh, what I was discovering was, you know, I, I started to find, you know, when we sprayed it, there was all kinds of other things happening. It wasn't just things happening with the trees. Uh, you know, we, we did a, a, a bunch of plots in, in, uh, uh, up in the northern Nova Scotia, up in the hill, hilly area in northern Nova Scotia, and, and we really wanted to see how fast things would, uh, uh, you know, how fast uh, did we need to get in there? Did we have to spray uh, to get rid of raspberries early on, or could we wait? And uh, when we went in, uh, the, in the very first season, we went back the next year to do the ass assessments. Assessments were, follow-up assessments were done every year for sometimes five years afterwards just to see how the trees grew with this treatment. And I discovered things like Panax trifolium, which is dwarf ginseng, which we have a lot of in Nova Scotia, northern Nova Scotia, okay. and it just went crazy because we eliminated the competition. So it wasn't right? harmed by it? Wasn't, no, we see, it had completed its life cycle. Okay. So then it just it woke up in the spring and it's like, oh my goodness, we're in full sunlight. There's lots of plants out there that, that are shade tolerant. They, like, they, they will grow in shade. Most of them will grow in full sunlight, and, and they enjoy growing in full sunlight. The issue is that they can't compete with other plants that mm. will outcompete them in full sunlight. Right. So, so, yeah, so I learned a lot at Forest Research. That was, a, that was an amazing experience. I had a lot of really good people up there, and uh, sometimes I wish I'd stayed, but uh, I ended up, heading to Bridgewater actually and uh, and worked with the uh, Christmas tree growers as a technical specialist with lands and forest at that time or natural resources and uh, I was there for eight years and that was another great experience so now I'm so I'm still thinking in the back of my mind I'm still thinking about this botanical garden right like a, you know I just love the idea of the botanical garden and now I'm I'm actually involved with an industry that is culturing plants on clear cuts or, or forest land it's you know what I mean and they're native plants indigenous plants and they're plants in most cases those most of the balsam fir and Christmas tree lots are grown from seed that falls from seed trees that the growers leave mm. so it was really it was like you know I, I used to tell, tell this to so many people but if you had to pick a tree if you had to pick a Christmas tree from anywhere in North America and uh, and you know what I mean sort of like one that was most environmentally friendly it would be a tree from Nova Scotia, a balsam fir tree from a tree lot in Nova Scotia. There was no peat moss mined to send to the nursery. No seed had to be collected and planted in that peat moss and then grown in a greenhouse for two years and then taken out to the field and planted and then tended. Now all these, all these trees, most of the trees that you see in Nova Scotia tree lots, the seed falls from a seed tree on the lot hmm. that's, you know, the tree would have been from that lot, so yeah. best suited for it and uh, and uh, the Christmas trees grow from them. So it's. I didn't even realize there were places where the Christmas trees are started in a greenhouse. But I grew up in Ontario and visiting Nova Scotia, and you'd go out and you could cut a Christmas tree from the forest. And I'm just even surprised now to hear that some of them are started in greenhouses. I don't in think some that places. there's a tree in in Ontario. I, there there would probably be a few tree lots in Ontario that would use naturally regenerated trees. That's what they call them. Really? But uh, almost all the trees in 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 uh, uh, Ontario West 
are all plantation trees. There's a little bit of uh, natural regeneration, uh, Douglas fir in the West Coast, but not very much. Really? And New Brunswick has some, but you know they have almost more plantations than they do, or they did when I worked in the industry, more plantations than they do uh, uh, naturally regenerated tree lots. Hmm. That, that require the first couple of years need to be in a, in a greenhouse to get them going? Well, well you're, you're, you're planting trees on old agricultural fields. So you plant the trees in rows on, on you know, old agricultural fields. Now, the upside to that is the fact that all of the trees, uh, all the trees mature at the same time. So you get roughly 1,200 trees per acre you'll be cutting on every acre. Oh. So when you shear them, you're shearing trees on that one acre that mm-hmm. will yield eventually, you know what I mean, sort of like all the fertilizer. It's, a, it's all on an acre basis. In Nova Scotia, it takes 10 acres of trees to, to cut the same number you get off one acre of plantation. So it's a lot more work. A lot more work to uh, to grow trees in naturally regenerated tree lots because the trees are all aged. It's like, you know, when we talk about forests, which I think we're going to talk about, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, we talk about all-age forestry. Mm-hmm. Well, plantation is even age. Even age is easier to deal with. It's easier to deal with in forestry, and it's certainly easier to deal with in the Christmas tree industry. Mm-hmm. And that's where they plant all the trees. All the trees in the United States, I don't know of any tree lot down there that works with naturally regenerated trees. Wow. All planted. Hmm. So it actually takes a lot of resources to grow the typical Christmas tree. Absolutely. You put a whole bunch of trees in a nursery situation and and you're having to deal with more pesticides and more issues with insects. Uh, You know, anything that gets into a greenhouse will spread very rapidly because the trees are so close together. So, you know, in addition to all the energy required to bring the peat moss and build the trays and everything. So... Mm -hmm. When I began to ask Peter more about the commercial Christmas tree industry, he was in the middle of describing his 22 years with lands and forestry. So, back now to Peter continuing on to what he did after his work with the Christmas tree growers. I left the uh, Christmas tree industry and went to work with uh, the education complex in Middle Muscadabin because I had always been a bit of a, you know, I like to talk and, you know, we certainly, you know what I mean, I enjoyed helping people. I taught you know, tons of people in forestry, uh, how to, you know what I mean, sort of how to manage pesticide application use, whether it was Christmas tree growers or people in forestry. So yeah, I, I just thought that uh, the education complex would be a, a great spot to, to move to. So I worked there and met some great people there. Again, inspiring people, people who were really interested in just, you know what I mean, sort of, of you know, allowing you to, you know, stretch your wings and, and, and teach you know, we were getting kids from Halifax and, and uh, the surrounding areas, but, you know, some of the kids from Halifax had never been in a forest before and, you know, had mm-hmm. never seen it. Some of them, they, they, sometimes buses would be late because they would stop on the edge of a field because the kids had never seen a cow. How, how many and years back now are we? That would have been uh, uh, 1999, wow. 98, 99. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that was, that was a, you know, another great experience. But shortly thereafter, that's when uh, they offered this uh, severance package to any of the specialists who wanted to leave provincial government, uh, agriculture, fisheries, forestry, all of the mining. So I was one who just decided to, to, uh, to leave at that point in time and uh, try my luck at uh, doing what I wanted to do, which was a lot more related to indigenous plants. 
So when I left, I was, I was doing some consulting work on like large sort of uh, non-commercial uh, forests, people who weren't interested in harvesting. They were just interested in keeping their trees upright. And I did some work there and got involved with the Acadia Project, the uh, Harriet Irving Botanical Gardens. And uh, from there, I just ended up in a position down there. And so, yeah, it was, it was challenging, but a whole lot of fun. I don't think I've done anything in my life that I didn't really enjoy. Wow, that's amazing to be it able to say that. It is kind of amazing when you think about it, right? Yeah. Hmm. Anyway. I'm really curious. Like, It sounds like when you were um, involved in the, in the research work, glyphosate was just kind of starting yes. and seeming like a, a really good idea at the time, I imagine. And... Um, well, yeah, maybe if you could just tell me a little bit more kind of of the life cycle of that and what benefits and problems you think that's caused and where we're at now with it. Well, I, you know, when when we first started, uh, you know, first got involved with that, it was it seemed like it was the, the Cape Breton Highlands had just failed from the budworm, which is kind of interesting because today I heard in the news that we've got the budworm back in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. and they're talking about just letting it go, which is probably the best thing you can do. Oh. Right? The budworm is going to clear cut the highlands again if, if, if it gets up there. It's a very even aged forest up there, but it was a forest that was really, uh, Storo was very dependent on. And they had leased all of the land in Nova Scotia, I think in like the eight eastern counties or something all the crown land was leased to store so they had cutting rights they still had to follow provincial regulations to do any cutting or anything and they were they were pretty respectful but you know what i mean sort of there was a, a set of guidelines that they stuck to and the guidelines are certainly not the guidelines that we have today so uh so really there when you when you clear cut a forest especially an even age forest like the cape breton highlands you get a you get uh, generally speaking a lot of raspberry comes back very very thick raspberry but this would have been this would have happened you know what i mean over the last centuries right the budworm comes in eats all the trees they all fall down the raspberry grows up the you know and the raspberry Frankly, these plants that come in really early on in successional stages like that, after a forest falls, whether it's a fire or hurricane or budworm, uh, there's early succession species that come in. And I, I really feel that they're there to grab the nutrients that are decomposing on the site, mm-hmm. right? All this organic matter is now exposed to the sun. The sun warms it up. There's a, a, a severely increased amount of uh, you know nutrient available to plants. And plants like raspberry can come in very quickly, grab it, and use it. And the raspberries become very thick. And uh, they were having problems up there, like the rabbits were eating the trees under the raspberry. And so that's, you know, that was part of the reason why we got into glyphosate, at least from my perspective. And uh, that was to kill the raspberries so that the trees would be free to grow. But the problem was, and I, we learned this over time, and, and I don't think that the, anybody within the Provincial Forestry Department would, not many people would agree with me, some would, but uh, what we ended up doing was we, ch- we took out the raspberry and we, we replaced it with grass, right? So you kill all the raspberry, and there's always grass in the highlands. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of different species of grass, but obviously the grass would have been underneath the raspberry, so when you kill the raspberry, then, then you've got it almost looks like pasture land a couple of years later. Hmm. Well, if you do any research on trees, tree roots are very shallow, especially with the northern species like the, the conifers. And, and they're it, competing with the grass And they're competing then. with the grass. Mm. But, you know, you know, I had a rule of thumb that, that, uh, that I used to use, and it was a, a rule of thumb that I just made up one day when I was, you know, after looking at so many forests and people having problems, Christmas tree growers would always have problems. I say, kick the ground, tell me what happens. If they kick the ground and they said, nothing happens, it's nothing. I said, what do you mean? You can't kick a piece of the ground out? You can't, you know. And uh, they said, no, it's just solid as a rock. Yeah, yeah. Well, you want to know something? It's too much competition 
for the trees. And where the raspberry was, you could always kick up a big footful of duff and rotten organic matter would just fly in the air every time you kicked it up. So these raspberries were the right thing for that forest, especially in the Cape Breton Highlands, which is a, very similar to a lot of the forests on the eastern shore, and uh, and some of the forests down here too, but not very much of it. This is a little bit of a different forest type here. So so yeah, so uh, that was the whole concept: is to get these trees free to grow, get them in open sun, and then grow them as fast as we can. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, that that's just a. Uh, uh, you know, it was what we did in the Highlands was we just created more of a problem for the trees in the long term. I think, I believe, than we uh, than we helped. The reason why it was done was because there was a lot of money coming from Ottawa that was being funneled through uh, federal forestry departments. It was subsidies, subsidies to spray, subsidies to build roads, subsidies to to do everything but clear cut. Right? They never gave a subsidy clear cut. Right? You know what I mean? There was probably some subsidies there for salvaging the wood. Right? That was you know what I mean, sort of dying and falling over, but. That's another story. Well, you know what the real big story is with respect to forests in Nova Scotia and around the world is there's there's too many humans on the planet. There's we've overpopulated the planet, and you know the demands that we have now are not like the demands of the Mi'kmaq 400 years ago, but there were far fewer of them. There's too many people on the planet, and there's too much too many demands on our natural resources. But, uh, you know, in forestry in Nova Scotia, and that's all I can really speak for is Nova Scotia, but in forestry in Nova Scotia, the, uh, uh, what we tend to do is we're always trying to find use for that product, right? Like, you know what I mean? Oh, it's a low-end product. I mean, you know how many ships are leaving Halifax Harbor every day with wood pellets going to Norway and places in Europe also that they can say that, oh, we're green, we're producing green energy because we're buying trees that are regrowing. And the trees that they're taking from Nova Scotia are, in a lot of cases, the early succession species. Sometimes it's thinnings, but in a lot of cases, it's the trees that come up early. I guess, you know what, I think, you know what, we're going to restart this this discussion. We're going to talk about what happens after a glacier leaves a piece of land in, in North America. So, okay. and uh, this this will make sense, you know. Can we start from the beginning? <laughs> maybe, maybe you could tell me what, what happens when a glacier leaves. <laughs> when a glacier leaves. So, so when the glacier left or when the ice melted, you know what I mean, 11,000 years ago or whenever it was, um, really the soil that was uh, exposed, it would have had no nutrient content, lots of minerals and probably lots of good water and everything, but no, no nutrient content. So the first thing, you know, lichens and protozoa and all kinds of algae, and things start to develop. Mm -hmm. And what they do is when they die, they create that little bit of organic matter that eventually mosses and maybe a few grasses will grow in. And then when they die, they create the organic matter that some of the shrub plants would grow in, the northern shrubs, even some of our shrubs like calamia and Labrador tea and things like that would grow. And they have to continuously build up that organic layer to get to a point where they could support the life of a tree. So... Once trees get started on a lot, you'll get early succession species trees, which would be, if you cut a forest in Nova Scotia right now, that would be things like white birch and balsam fir and, you know, gray birch, uh, some of the poplars, depending on where you are. And uh, these early succession trees come up, right? They Mm -hmm. grow up and they fall over rather quickly. So, you know, after the time, after, after you get trees started in all of these shrub forests, then all of a sudden the trees are falling over. Nobody's harvesting them, right? Because this is still, we're talking 
10,000 years ago. So nobody's harvesting those. those trees lay on the ground. That organic matter rots, creates a, a, a better site, a better soil, uh, you know, a, a better place for bigger trees to grow. So slowly over time, the species composition changes because the soils become much more fertile, much more appropriate for for uh, different species of trees. And then what we have in Nova Scotia is we have a forest that's full of all kinds of trees, early succession trees, late succession trees, shade tolerant trees, shade intolerant trees. And, uh, and I believe that a lot of the early succession species like white birch and balsam fir, they grow up and when they grow up, they don't last very long, maybe a hundred years at the most, and then they fall over. But when they fall over, those bowls are what are most important. Mm -hmm. Those are the most important part of that tree. Just a quick insertion for clarity here. The bowl is another word for the stem or trunk of a tree. The needles and leaves disappear in a year, and the branches will disappear in a few years, but the bowls of those trees can last a hundred years. So while while those trees, just before they fall over, the shade-tolerant species start to come in, like hemlock and yellow birch, sugar maple, red spruce, and those trees grow up underneath that canopy. When the early succession species fall over, there's the nutrient for those trees to go on to live to be 300 years old. It's that bowl that lays on the ground that rots slowly over a long period of time that gives mm-hmm. those trees the energy to, to become 250-year-old red spruce. Mm-hmm. And what do we do now with all of the trees, all of those early succession p- species, uh, we, we, we call it low-value wood. What can we do with our low-value wood? Oh, let's, let's put it all into wood pellets and, and, and sell it to Europe. And it's it's really it's it's the worst thing we could do. The best thing for if we wanted to evolve, if we wanted to continue the succession to a climate stage forest, the best thing to do is to leave those trees lying on the forest floor. Right. But so it's it, nobody wants to do it. So it's low economic value, but it's very high ecological value. That's so, uh, I, I'd say the highest ecological value. Really. You know, we we we've looked at trees. I mean, we I've been back. I, we could go to Panook Lake right now and look at Hurricane Edna blew through. I can't remember when it was. Nineteen. 54 or something, right? It was a hurricane that blew through Nova Scotia. And the hemlock that blew over there, in 1980, a company in Truro bought the rights to harvest a bunch of the hemlock that blew over in 1954. And the hemlock stems hadn't even got to the ground yet. The branches were holding them up off the ground. So the, the root tips over and uh, the root system's holding the bottom of the stem up and then the branches slowly rot and it takes it takes if those trees were 300 years old i almost guarantee you it would take almost 300 years for those trees to completely rot and that's how all aged old growth stands work those Mm -hmm. trees fall down but in forestry today we talk about going in and doing single tree harvesting Mm -hmm. well we're not leaving the bowl there anymore right right you know when a hurricane goes by Yeah, all the trees blow over and the branches and everything rot really quickly, but the stem stays for a long time. Mm -hmm. When a fire burns through, all the trees get burnt up, but what doesn't get burnt? I've never seen a forest fire burn every bowl on every tree. That's the thing. That's the thing that will create a forest that's moving towards a climate stage, a climax stage, not, you know what I mean, sort of not 
taking any of that out. So how do we do it if we don't take it out? I mean, we, do, we wouldn't have forestry if we didn't take the bowls out of the woods. Well, can you take some of them out? Are you Well, you know what? I don't think that research has been done yet. I don't think we know how much. We know the coarse woody debris is really important in a forest, and we know that standing deadwood is, which ends up being coarse woody de- debris on the ground. But what we don't know is, and this is where I looked through the Leahy report, you know, a couple of weeks ago looking for something that talks about, you know what I mean, why aren't we paying woodlot owners to leave low-value balsam fir and white birch, let it fall over, or pay them to cut it over and let it lay in their forests. And then those red spruce are going to get bigger, faster, and live longer. Hmm. I mean, you know, if we could make toilet paper and two-by-fours out of branches and twigs, we could go in and practice forestry forever. Because, mm-hmm. you know, on top of the twigs in a clear-cut situation, when you fall those trees and all those needles and all those branches hit the ground, there's probably way more nutrient than the forest can manage. So then you end up with nutrient runoff, right? Mm. The soil warms up and nutrients are running off and that's causing problems in brooks and streams. So, and, you know, a lot of this is just from my own experience, right? But you know, when you read about succession stages and how forests evolve, it, it, it's, it's just like common sense. It's mm-hmm. just that we can't use common sense because there's too many of us. You know, but aren't there two different issues or two related issues? There are too many of us, but it still matters how things are done. Like there could be a range of how many people the land could support depending on how the land was used. Absolutely. So, so if we can't as easily control the amount of people how how can how can we at least improve the practices like i mean it's not like the practices don't matter right no 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 i I understand no no there's only one way to make our forest better in nova scotia that's to leave leave wood in the woods that's there's there's Mm -hmm. no other way to make them better so so are you um a proponent for for no more forestry here right now uh no no i no i don't think so at all right Uh, i think we need to do the research to determine how much organic matter we need to lay on the ground to create trees that will grow to be 200 years old because i can tell you right now when you uh, you know you take all that what they call you know low value wood out turn it into wood pellets and send it to europe right those red spruce that are on that stand that you took all that wood out of you went through and you cleaned it all out so it doesn't look like it's been clear cut that's all fine and good but when when you go back to harvest those trees they are not going to be able to survive near as long as trees if there were large amounts of organic debris left on the ground uh-huh. So we need to we need to find what 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 is that number and that number is going to be different for every forest and uh, and uh, it's 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 not a number that I can find anywhere right now you know we all talk about how important coarse woody debris is and standing deadwood and all that stuff but nobody says how much of it we have to have. Can you just define coarse woody debris? So coarse woody debris is little large stems coarse woody debris right like the the bowls of the trees right that's what i call coarse woody debris. Okay, some so people this... may call it branches or roots and and you know there was a lot of talk in forestry years ago it's like you know they, that the, the root systems had so much wood in them that that would account for all the wood that would come out but it doesn't that that's not the way well if we don't want our forests and, and this is the other thing too we we if we came up with the right number uh at least we could have the same forest that we have today in the future but if we keep taking all the bowls out of the woods 
Mm-hmm. Our forests are not going to look like this in the future. They're going to look worse than this in the future. Yeah. And they're just going to roll back those succession stages. We're going to go back to a small tree forest like you're in right now, which is really, that's what my forest is for a whole bunch of different reasons. But uh, you know what I mean? It's going to be a small tree forest. And then if we keep taking those trees out, it'll end up being a shrub forest again. Mm-hmm. If we take all the shrubs out... It'll end up being a moss and lichen and grass plain. Right, so we can actually regress in the successional we, 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 stages over absolutely. time. Absolutely, it works both ways. Yeah. Um, okay, well, maybe we could just take a quick detour so you could describe. So I know you've lived where you're living now for 10 years, and you could just describe this forest where we're in right now, Yeah. maybe? Yeah, so uh, we're in a black spruce. It's, a, it's kind of a black spruce uh, red maple. And uh, it's a variety of red maple, actually, trilobum. It only has three lobes. Red maple, you know, our, our Canadian flag is five lobes. Well, trilobum has three lobes. And it's, a, it's one that's found along, they say, they, some people call it river maple. And, you know, I've heard it, I've seen it along the coast. And, uh, and most of, mostly it's spruce. And there is scattered fir. There's some birch in this forest. But we're right on the rocky shore. We're on the, the, the where the gray wacky is exposed. So we have a ledge. And then a little bit of a bog, and a ledge, and a bog, and a ledge, and a bog, all the way to the coast. And we're about three, 300 meters from the, from the shoreline at Crescent Beach. So it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a forest that, it's all the same age because there was a fire here in, I think, 1918 that started in Petite Riviere and burned all the way to West Dublin. It burnt burns, and uh, oh yes, it was wow. a, a big fire. It was a, it's a, there's the, you know, you can read newspaper reports of the, of the fire. So pretty much all the trees that I've aged here, uh, they're either younger than, or they're all uh, roughly 100, 100 or so years old. And some of them are as big as, uh, because the nutrient, there's not very much soil here, so the bogs are sort of filled with uh, organic material, sphagnum moss and shrub complexes, like, you know, on the dry spots, it's huckleberry and calamia and Labrador tea, and, uh, and very little soil. So these trees are growing strictly in organic matter, and uh, they just, you know what I mean, sort of like, it just can't support long tree life. Black spruce easily live for 150 200 years in upland soils Mm. right nice deep soils there's no soil here so they're all starting to fail right now that's what we're seeing all along the shoreline here between you know the islands is the same thing it's i don't know how extensive the fire was but it looks to me like a lot of these trees are starting to fail the park is just every year the trees down in in uh, rizzers beach park they're just down all over the place Mm -hmm. and uh it's 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 uh you know what this is uh this is what happens so if all those trees blow over and lay on the ground, mm-hmm. the next forest will last to be 125 or 30 years old. And then if those trees lay on the ground, the next forest might be 200 years old. But, right. you know, are we doing that? I know I do it, but I don't think there's very many other people that do it. Right. So so obviously trying to, to balance the short-term economic considerations with the like very very long-term ecological I know. situation i see this is an issue is you know we, we you know our lives are so short compared to the life of a uh, you know a forest lives on forever and, yeah. and uh, you know it's very difficult for for people to get you know to to become passionate about you know what i mean sort of that forest that they're never going to see mm-hmm. right i can show you on the on the pathway that we walked in here all of the wood that i cut down well i i take out probably less than 10 percent of what i cut down i don't cut down anything unless it's uh a leaning if it's already starting to blow over because then it just damages the new trees that are trying to come up if it falls randomly so i can cut it down get it down i trim the branches off it which 
you know, is obviously going to have some sort of effect, but the effect won't be that great. By trimming the branches off, getting the stem on the ground, it'll rot a little bit faster, but, you know, not significantly faster, but Hmm. that's all I do. So I know one of the things, maybe you, because you worked in um, Department of Natural Resources for so long, I know one of the things that the Leahy Port says is that a major cultural shift is necessary in the department for some of these ideas to take hold. Can you speak to the culture of the department, or what well, do you think about that whole well, idea? Well, I, I can't really speak to the culture of the department now. It's it's it's, yeah, it's, it's probably a, a lot different than it was when I was there. When I was there, it was you know the classic government department you know the the old boys club you know there was a group of people at the top that helped each other and and you know what they were all good people and they all had some concerns about forestry but i think they were more concerned about the the hierarchy uh, structure of the department than they were about the actual you know whether or not we should leave a, a log in the woods or take it out and chip it and send it to europe so you know i i think that that's changed a lot i think you know i i hear the young voices in the department some of them that i knew and uh and yeah i hear some great comments in fact you know uh ogden was on the uh provincial entomologist was on just just today talking about maybe we just need to leave the budworm alone right mm. rather than spraying for it let that whole thing happen and just you know let's let it happen now and you want to know something our great-grandchildren will benefit greatly mm. by just letting all those trees just fall and collapse the next forest will come up bigger and better and i'm not really sure really if uh, if the the even age stands like you find in the cape breton highlands if there's any if there's a, i don't think there's any way you could turn them into an all-aged forest right like you can with tons of the forest in in western nova scotia and central and you know northern but cape breton highlands is a is a bit of a boreal forest it's not really a, a, you know the classic acadian forest like we're right. sort of in now. So, so so just to be clear their natural tendency is to um, end up as an even age because they're more susceptible to natural large-scale disturbances is yeah that- i think i think that's probably it it's just that you know what i mean sort of that's that's you know the seeds all the seeds uh, you know the the seeds that the trees put down are designed to sit there and wait the raspberry seed you know it's interesting raspberry seed will live to be 100 120 years old so wow. it's, it stays in the seed bank waiting for Jeez. the forest to collapse it's almost telling us if it's a if it was, I don't know exactly what it is, but if it was, say, a hundred years, uh, it'll it'll wait a hundred years. Well, there's 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 your answer to uh, how often does this forest collapse right. every hundred years? And that obviously yeah. it's evolved to do that, and it must be okay yeah. if the seed can last that long. Yeah, absolutely, hmm. absolutely. That's Everything's okay. You know, it's just like you know. <laughs> If a pandemic wipes us all out, the earth will be fine, right? It'll come back. It'll take a little while, but you know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm more cons- more interested in, you know, sort of fixing it now and, and doing things that we need to do and, and, you know, biting the bullet now. That's what we have to do. Mm-hmm. It's going to cost us all. So what do we need to do, do you think? Well, I think we just need to start managing our forests more, uh, you know what I mean, sort of more ecological forestry practices, just like the Leahy Report said, right? Mm-hmm. I think we got to really look at some out of the box concepts like paying, you know, private woodlot owners to cut the trees down and let them lay on the ground and rot. Hmm. We'll get it back in droves because, you know, the government they tax us, so when you sell your big spruce logs are going to be worth a lot more than a bunch of, you know, pellet wood that's going to Europe. Yeah. Can you tell I'm really upset about the whole the wood well, pellet thing? It's it's awful, really. I I'm sorry, but yeah, it's No, it's, yeah. I mean and, and any time that you're transporting so much material so far too i mean even yeah. even that in itself seems yes, kind absolutely. of silly yeah when we also use wood products here I, and they also have forests there yeah yeah 
Yeah, well, the I don't I don't know much about this as far as um, the economic value. They yeah. they can't get that much money for those no, probably no, right. No, no, I I don't think so. I I think it I, I think it's just and you know what I mean. That's why we call it low value wood product, right? Like yeah. you know what I mean. What are we going to do with all this low value product? Oh my God, it's so simple. We're going to leave the low value product in the woods to create higher value product down the road. It does seem really simple and and. and so so why is it so hard to focus on changing the problem and creating more high value wood instead of like we have to deal with this like so-called low value wood yeah yeah i i think uh, you know some of our problem is just you know what i mean it's not like you just have to convince the government agencies to to understand that because i think they probably do deep down they 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 know and they could figure it out somebody could explain it to them and they'd all understand it um you know one of our biggest problems in nova scotia is there's so much of the woodlot woodland is privately owned you know Mm -hmm. half the province is privately owned so that means that half of the wood that's growing no just like the woodlot you're sitting on right now it's privately owned i own it Mm -hmm. right and uh you know you try and explain a lot of people um a lot of people don't have the income that you know especially in rural areas they may have a woodlot but they don't have the income and it looks pretty uh uh you know it can be it can make the difference between having a good year and having a terrible year when somebody comes and offers you money to go in and take out all that low volume wood right so even though it looks like you're doing the right thing right you're you're going in and you're selectively removing trees around you know what i mean red spruce and hemlock and white pine and sugar maple that are going to grow on to live for another you know 100 years you're really not because they won't they won't perform mm. like they will if they have that energy on the ground mm. right Okay, so it's partly an aesthetic thing too, isn't it? Like when you look at a, f- a forest and people think, "Oh, that forest needs to be cleaned up." Like that, that when you well, see I, dead things, you think it's a problem and they need to be removed. But that's what is helping create the nutrients for the trees that are growing. Absolutely, I, I, I you know, I should introduce you to some of my friends. We'd be traveling. I don't know how many times have you done this. It's you're traveling along, and they look out and say, "Oh my God, look at that forest! Looks so neat and tidy." And it's a clear cut that they piled the brush up, they burned all the brush, and then they planted trees, and then they sprayed it with glyphosate so that it's just bare ground not bare ground there's some organic matter there because it would have been left over but it's just bare ground and trees and i'd have to explain to them that the next site that we see which is just a jumble of fallen trees and stumps turned over and piles of brush that's the most ecologically sound forest not the one that's all cleaned up and looks really neat and tidy yeah but how many of us live in a house that has six different carpet types in the living room and you know what i mean sort of like we're so used to everything being neat six different carpet types imagine if you walked into somebody's living room and they had like you know a small living room 10 by 20 with 13 different carpet even age i mean uh, uneven age age carpet (laughs) yeah yeah Oh, that's funny. Well, yeah, that's we're a too, point, we're too, though. We're too, I mean, you look at us, we're too used to it, right? Like, you know, it's that's that's uh, that's the way we've been raised. I mean, you know, how long has it taken us to get off lawn chemicals? Mm-hmm. You know, everybody wanted to have, everybody had the perfect lawn, right? It was, you know, all grass. And now I think we're all pretty accustomed to seeing lawns that are covered in dandelions in the spring and full of bees and bugs and snakes. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's taken a while, but, you know, we managed to do it. And if we can do it in, you know, with... What I call city slickers. I've got lots of city slicker friends. You know what I mean? So, like, you know, we can certainly do it with the people who own forest land and 
you know, private lands across Nova Scotia. So do you see more of the the challenge right now as far as shifting into better forestry practices um, being on public land or private land? I think, uh, you know what, uh, public land is going to be dictated by a whole bunch of people are going to be involved with that. And I think we're going to see things move to be probably um, a little bit better on, on, on public lands. Yeah, private lands worry me much more because, of course, you know what I mean? Private owners, it's like, you know, how can you tell me? What, what do you, you can't tell me what what I can do with my forest, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why I say we have to have incentives. Yeah. And those incentives would be things like, you know, uh, a subsidy to cut the wood and let it lay. If you've got white birch or, or you know, white birch is, is it's really not much good for firewood. It, I mean, it's brilliant for, you know what I mean, sort of like when it, when it used to get big. Mm-hmm. It was, I mean, the Mi'kmaq used it for centuries for canoes. I mean, I... I've seen it used as a vapor barrier in 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 old houses, oh, right? Really? White birch, absolutely. Wow, it's amazing. The 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 bark is completely resistant to to mm. you know it's resistant to water and wind won't blow through it, so it's a brilliant. But you know what I mean? The little ones that we have now are you know what I mean? Sort of they they you know instead of taking them out and turning them into pellets, they need to lay on the ground. Or manage for future vapor Dad building vapor. industry. Oh, That's interesting. No, I had no idea. That oh, sounds yeah, like no, a no, really. No. I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's a, it's a, you know, it was used by the Mi'kmaq. Although for... it also burns really easily. That sounds... it bur- well, it burns easily, but it doesn't have very many BTUs. It's it's pretty much the same as Eastern Larch. I would just mean for vapor barrier. It sounds like a safety hazard. Oh That's well, what I was yeah. Thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wood, no, I, is, wood burns too. Yeah. All of our houses have some wood in them, right? That's so, true. Yeah. It wouldn't make that much difference. I don't think it would make any difference. It was oh. underneath your shingles and everything. Oh, yeah? Really? Yeah. I really like that idea then. Yeah. All we have to do is find some birch, which is the problem now. It's like, you know what I mean? Sort of birch is getting cut out and shipped off as low-value so, wood. So we can so find quick. it in 100 years, yeah. though, yeah. if we were managing for that, for instance. It, right. it just seems like there's there's all sorts of options for how we could be managing, right? Yes, absolutely. If, if it was long-term thinking and thoughtful yeah, consideration of planning for what was useful. Yeah. And and it could be different directions or it could be different directions for different communities or different forest types obviously and Absolutely. That's a, that, that's a great way, a great way to think about it, right? You know, and you know, but people, private landowners need incentive. Mm-hmm. And that incentive, that's that's where the government has to step in. The government lands different story, right? They they could do the studies to determine how much do we need to leave on this site, this site type to, you know what I mean, allow these uh, these uh, red spruce to go from 100 to 200 in, you know what I mean, 60 years, mm. right? Like 100 to 200 years old. So, you know, you, you, want them, you want them to grow fast, you know what I mean, which is, you know, uh, all aged forests are really productive and really, you know, they're, they're you know, they're beautiful. They're, they, you don't even know. I've, I've been in forests that have been cut for 100 years, and you could hardly tell that they were being cut. But I can almost guarantee you that if we went back 200 years ago and looked at those trees, they would have been growing faster back then than they are now because we're taking out those stems. It takes mm-hmm. a long time for the effect to be felt in an all-aged forest. There's already a lot of, like, big organic debris on the ground, right? So it'd be a lot longer to to see the effect versus, you know what I mean, sort of a forest that's been clear-cut three times already. Mm. That organic matter is down to just about nothing, and you can't expect to get much more than 50, 60, 70 years out of trees before they start to slow down. So when you talk about the organic matter in the forest... So the organic matter is providing the nutrients for the up-and-coming trees or the, or the trees that are growing still. 
but it's also um, capturing moisture. Absolutely. And so where does like changing weather patterns fit into this well, and, and droughts and things? It, it makes a big difference, you know, uh, and I hear my colleagues and, and other people talking about, you know what I mean, sort of planting indigenous species. And, and I think that that's a, it's, it's a great idea. I, I think we absolutely should stick with indigenous species, but I'm not sure if we should stick with indigenous species that were here 200 years ago. The climate's already warmer. It's going to get much warmer. We need to be looking at species maybe that were more successful in New York State than in Nova Scotia, right? And, you know, that's, that's how we have, to, we have to start thinking about what we plant and, and what we encourage to grow here. You know, we can talk all we want about how, you know, those species are, are, are best for, uh, uh, you know, this environment because they've been here for so many centuries, but they're not going to be here forever because the climate's warming up yeah so you know this is another 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 thing the organic matter we we did a soils course once where we 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 were trained like you know what i mean to you know be able to do rudimentary soil pits and soil analysis and you know at least collect samples and send them off and so we we had a lot of training when i was with forest research and and i can remember we were on the top of uh of uh, wasn't Nutby Mountain, but it was that range of hills uh, just north of Truro, and we were on the very top of it. And it was middle of July, I think, and we were doing a soils course with a chap from uh, from the uh, agriculture college. Uh, me and a couple of other guys were taxed with going around picking the sites and digging the soil pits. So I always like to dig a big soil pit. I mean, little tiny soil pits are pretty much useless. You can't see them, and if there's any number of people, so I we dug a big hole, like you know, probably a meter in diameter. And went down and down and down and down and down. It was bone dry. I've never seen anything so dry in all my life. Now, it's the top of a hill. Hmm. So, you know what I mean? You would expect the top of a hill to become drier faster during a drought period. Mm -hmm. We're obviously in a drought. So, anyway, just sitting down, marveling at how we were getting dust out of the bottom, like three feet down in this hole. And I was sitting on a log, and I noticed an old rotten log, and then... I felt my, my, my butt was wet, and I thought, oh, my God, that's interesting. So then I stuck my hand. You could just stick your hand into this rotten log, and I pulled out some wood, and I squeezed it, and drips of water came out of that wood. Yeah, wow. The surface was on the surface. Those trees were getting the moisture they needed. It was on the surface. It wasn't down in the, in the soil. It might have been way down in the soil, but there was lots of uh, uh, moisture on the surface of the soil held in that organic matter. Uh-huh. It's incredibly important. So, you know, climate change is going to throw a whole bunch of things at us, right? You know, we're going to get, you know, I, I, I used to tell Christmas tree growers, don't fertilize if we know we've got heavy rains coming because they used to fertilize with nitrogen fertilizers. That's why the trees are so green. And it helps them to become fuller and, I mean, it makes them more saleable. But, uh, you know, if you fertilize just before a heavy rain, a lot of, especially if you're using any kind of ammonium nitrate fertilizer, the fertilizer all washes away. So you can lose half of your effect just mm. in, you know, three days of heavy rains. And pollute the water systems and pollute at the, the same water, time. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, groundwater systems and all kinds of things, you know, have ill effects when there's too much nitrogen. So, yeah, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that we have to start thinking about from a climate change perspective. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe we're not going to have as many all-aged forests because... The winds are going to blow a lot harder and we're going to get more intense hurricanes, you know. Mm. The one thing we do know is that we have a lot of moisture here, which is actually a really good thing, right? You know, I, I have never seen Nova Scotia in the drought conditions that are existing, you know, as we speak in California and British Columbia. It's like, you know, it's never been that bad here. 
and uh, you know, but we have to we have to manage my garden. My, I mean, just my simple, silly little garden. I have trenches dug. There are gravel paths in the garden. Well, those trenches, the the soil has got a lot of clay in it. Those trenches just ca- capture a trench full of water and allow ah. it to leach slowly into the clay soil beside it. Mm. So, you know, and my plan is to make them even more extensive and have almost like a, a valve at the end of it that I could open up if there's too much water. Okay. You want the water to escape. But if there's, you know what I mean, sort of like, you know, if we're in situations like we're in, this is pretty droughty right now for us. Yeah. All those things. we got to think about all of that. And we got to think about that in a very different way with forests. But I'm telling you, I know, I know what I felt on my butt and that was moisture in a log when I couldn't find any in a soil pit. Yeah. So every morning you get up, you go outside, and especially along the coast here, it's brilliant. And I'm sure it's the same when you get into the high elevation areas like, you know, our hilly range in, nor- in northern Nova Scotia. And that is that the, uh, the, the leaves are in, in the morning and walking through the forest and everything's dripping on you because of mm-hmm. the condensation. Mm-hmm. And that water never makes it into the ground, but it makes it to the... It makes it to the uh, the organic material, right? And and you know what? Where do all our trees? All that all that energy is in that organic matter. So where are all those feeder roots? They're not down three feet in the ground. That mm-hmm. would be senseless to be down that deep, right? They go down to hold themselves up, maybe pick up some water, but the, all the all the feeder roots of all the trees doesn't matter what species it is in Nova Scotia are not far under that organic matter. Hmm. And then, so is it true then if it suddenly all the organic matter was removed and it became very dry, then those feeder roots would just shrivel up and have a hard time that's then? Absolutely. Because, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. That's what we've been doing for centuries in forestry, right? We've been taking out all the bowls. Those are the things that last. Those are the things that rot slowly. And those are the things that capture a lot of that water. Yeah. Right? Needles and branches and everything, are, it's all good. It's all good stuff. But it's the bowls of the trees that we're not thinking about. Hmm. It's almost like there's there's two issues we have. One of them's overpopulation, and one of them's we're not leaving enough bowls of trees <laughs> in the forest in Nova Scotia or anywhere on the planet. Hmm. I think. Yeah. I can't speak for rainforest. I'm. You know, well, yeah, we can talk about our yeah, own yeah, region. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can only talk about. I'm. I'm a, uh, I've. I've never really left the Acadian forest for any more than a couple of weeks. So hmm. that's it. This is my. This is the forest that I know. I don't. I shouldn't comment about any other forest. So. Yeah, but to focus on this is a forest that you know it is an important point because forests are so different in so many places. And I think we just have such a mainstream cultural tendency to want to say, oh, I understand any whatever it is, right? Like I know about, I don't know, forests or I know about how to build a house or I know about how to grow food or I know about like obviously all those things are completely dependent on your bioregion. Right. And, and so... Yeah, I think that is an important point. About it is an important point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Um, somebody beeped the horn a while ago, so, yeah. Oh, did, did oh, they? Oh, no, no, no. It could be somebody here, but it doesn't really matter. I'm usually naked, so the rule is when you oh, come in the driveway, you right. beep the horn. Right, right, right. Yes, Karen did. <laughs> she, she warned doesn't. me about that. That's no, funny. I don't, I don't, I don't really yeah. care. But All I mean, through you know, the year, right? Not even in this, just in the oh, summer? Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. I'm... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I can stay naked all winter. You know what? There's another thing, right? We get used to, we get used to the temperature, right? It's like everybody's saying, it's like, oh, I got to get an air conditioner this year. It's getting so hot. It's like, no, no, no. You want to know something? If we don't get air conditioners, then our children will become accustomed to living in warmer temperatures. Mm. And you know what I mean? Mm, there's there's an evolutionary true. thing that happens in people, right? And, and we see it because you go to the valley and you look at who's, who's working the firms in the valley now. 
there are great farm workers from Jamaica and Haiti and Mexico, and they come up here and they work all day in the yeah. heat that we can't work in. Right. So what do we do? We go inside the house, turn on the air conditioner so that, you know what I mean, we, we, we program our genetics to say that, you know, the temperature's not changing. We don't need to get accustomed. And yeah. uh, we're, not, we're not evolving that way. We're evolving to create a little crazy environment just right around ourselves and not even considering how much energy it takes to create that environment. Well, that's a really interesting thing to think about. In general, we're way more focused on how to control our surroundings and how to adapt to our surroundings. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Adaptation. I keep talking about it. It's like, we got to learn to adapt. You know, but I think they're referring to like, you know what I mean? We got to build our houses with you know better roofs to keep the rain out or something you know adaptation that's true that's not the same it's not no evolution and adaptation are pretty are are fundamentally connected that you know it's like yeah you adapt and change or you don't survive and what are we doing you know we just keep using more energy instead of adapting yeah it's a little bit scary yeah no a lot of this is a little bit scary so where do we find hope that's the one thing that humanity always has is hope. We always have hope. So, you know, and I think that as time goes on and things get a little bit worse, things may have to get a little bit worse before they get better. But that's when, you know, the, the big corporations are going to have to start listening. They're going to they're gonna start bringing in these people that have these, you know, out-of-the-box ideas uh, about, you know what I mean, how to run a company or how to create a product or, you know, maybe not how to grow, maybe different economic systems. Mm-hmm. And that it'll all happen. I know it will. And uh, I, I just think that, you know what I mean, there's a, hu- a high probability that a lot of people are going to suffer before we get to that point, right? Yes. Um thinking about some of like the terms or labels that we give one another that sometimes create polarized positions and that Mm. it seems like a lot of people think these people are environmentalists and then they get kind of pitted against like maybe the people working in forestry for instance or working in like the you know resource industries right and so but probably a lot of the people that get into things like forestry do it because they really love the forest and they love being outside so there just must be a lot of overlap in the values of those, you know, and, and probably they're not necessarily different people. Like you're, you're, you're both of those things, right? <laughs> absolutely, abso- absolutely. And I got into forestry because I loved forests, just like everybody did. But once you get into forestry, especially in my generation, it was like you were trained to be a commercial forestry person, right? There was never, you know, in my generation, there is now, but in my generation, there was never any talk about, you know what I mean, the vegetation complexes that exist underneath or rare and endangered species or any of that. So I think, yeah, I think we we are. We are all cut from the same mold, right? But it it's it's really been sort of the media and to get the attention uh, environmentalists have become very vocal, right? And they they speak up and and say things that you know maybe a lot of people are going to listen to parts of my podcast or this podcast and say, oh well, he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? But you know what I mean. So I find that they over exaggerate sometimes the situation when in reality the forestry department is doing the opposite. So they are under exaggerating the situation so but it's really all based on on the you know the media and what people listen to if everybody mm-hmm. just simply listened to what you were saying and said well that makes sense or if you 
you know, you did a little bit of research and, oh, well, yeah, he was right or he wasn't so right. Like, you know what I mean? If you just presented your case, right? Mm. But that's not how it goes. You don't present your case anymore. You have to be, you have to be heard. And really the media loves it when you say things that are really controversial. So I think that that's been the problem between forest and and environmentalists. It's like the forestry people always have stuck to the commercial forestry side, whereas the environmentalists have stuck to the environmental side. And it's really somewhere in the middle that we need to be. Uh huh. And when you talk about those like policies, like like for instance, paying private landowners to keep the trees on their, you know, cut them or let them let them, let them lie and fall on on the ground. So if there were more policies like that, would that help bridge some of the opinions? It wouldn't be so much like the environmentalists having to push these things and saying, "You guys, you're ruining the world." It would be like, "Oh, these are the rules. We're going to all follow them," and and it would give some more credibility if it was coming from sort of like a policy standpoint. A- absolutely. And, and, and you know, it, it has to make sense it has to come with the, the research has to be there and you know what if i was in forestry right now and i was going to do the research to determine how much uh coarse woody debris needed to lie in the ground you know who i'd have i'd have somebody from the ecology action center on my team mm. right right there on the ground looking at the data with me out in the woods collecting some of the data you know what i mean and and i think that would be where probably you'll get the best solution right. that will meet both goals yeah you know so I'd like to end by asking you um, if you have either a favorite tree or a favorite forest relationship. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's it's funny. I, I often think I, I, I have conversations with trees every other day. They're brilliant, right? They really never argue with me. I've never had, I've never lost an argument with a tree. No, <laughs> they haven't fallen on you <laughs> no, yet. No. <laughs> but yeah, white birch. I, I, I went to a sweat lodge once and uh, meal get throw. Um, is from New Brunswick, and and uh, and he said he said I should I should think of myself as a white birch, Mishqui, I think it is or Misquash Misquash in uh, Mi'kmaq, and uh, yeah, so I've always had an affinity to for white birch, and he said he was really worried because the white birch were getting as big as they did when his ancestors lived here, and made their canoes from from birch bark canoes, mm-hmm. and then last year I saw Todd Labrador. Uh, finished the canoe over in Mahone Bay. Oh, cool. Oh, my God, it was brilliant. It was, I, I mean, it's beautiful and does such an exquisite job, right? But, uh, yeah, it just made me think, you know, I don't know, maybe I should be trying harder to help white birch out. I think about white birch a lot. So I guess that's my favorite tree. Hmm. That's the one I have the most conversations with. Around here, they never get bigger than about six inches in diameter because the forest is so impoverished. But the next generation will be bigger. Uh-huh, the next generation could yes, be bigger. the next mm. generation will be bigger here on My Little Forest. I really like ending on this note. With the image and reminder that the trees and plants can be healthier wherever we each live and have influence. And together, creative and ecological ways of thinking can stop our forests from being turned into wood pellets and shipped across the seas. Please consider supporting Shared Ground with a small donation which you can make at ko-fi.com forward slash shared ground. That's ko-fi.com forward slash shared ground. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. We will meet again in two weeks' time. Until then, fellow humans. Thank you.